Today's episode of Peers to Peers is powered by Shopify, the leading global commerce company that's shaping today's entrepreneurial economy. What started as three mates in a coffee shop trying to sell a snowboard has ended in thousands of employees around the world, bringing over 1.7 million businesses to life. You could say Shopify is a peer to us and entrepreneurs around the world. So peers, if you're looking to start your own business, head to shopify.com.au for your 14-day free trial. Hello, peers, and welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by Shopify. Peers speaking, peers listening. This is a conversation for you. I'm your host, Michelle Akidinol, founder of Leading Australian Podcast Agency and 2021 Australian Podcast Awards finalists, The Peers Project, and your fellow passionate peer. Each week, I invite an inspiring millennial entrepreneur from around the globe to chat with me. No filters, just real talk, peer to peer. Together, we unpack what it takes to go your own way, pursue your passion, and why there's really nothing better. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please do pass it on. The more peers, the merrier. Hello, peers, and welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by Shopify. As entrepreneurs, we're constantly thinking about the future, the next quarter, the next goal. But how often do we stop and think about death? Today's guest, Maika Isogawa, had to think about it at a very young age when her cousin tragically passed whilst in the prime of his life. As a result, Maika founded Webacy, a platform that helps to manage digital assets such as social media and cryptocurrency after death. In today's episode, Micah shares her discovery of finding a gap in the market, the importance of having an outlet outside of business, and why thinking about death can sometimes help us discover what we truly want. For those of you who haven't yet posted about our podcast on your socials, or if you're new here, firstly, welcome. And please do take a screenshot of this episode right now, post it to your Instagram story and tag us at The Peers Project so that other peers out there can benefit from the wisdom of these incredible millennial entrepreneurs and help us in our mission to empower you all to pursue what you're most passionate about through entrepreneurship. Okay, peers, without further ado, welcome Micah. Micah, welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. We're so excited to have you on the show today. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Amazing. So, you know, you and I recently connected and when I looked into you and all of the incredible work that you're doing in tech and in business, I knew I had to have you come on the show. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah. Thank you for reaching out. It's a, it's a wonderful podcast and it's a great chance to, you know, like chat with you and tell a story and so on. Ah, oh, I love that. Tell a story. That's what we're here to do. So look, for those of us who don't know who you are and what you do, tell us a little bit about yourself. 
Yeah, so my name is Maika Isogawa. I am a former Cirque du Soleil acrobat turned engineer. Uh, so I, I performed with Cirque du Soleil's Totem for a while, and I also performed with uh, Absinthe by Spiegel World. Uh, it's in Las Vegas and also in Australia. Um, and then I went back to school after leaving that job and became an engineer. I worked for Microsoft for um, you know about a year throughout the pandemic, and then most recently I founded my own company. It's called Webacy. We started last year, and it's a uh, it's a death tech company. So it's the the platform to manage life after death. But in general, we're we're helping users figure out a way to manage their digital assets for now and when they pass away. So fascinating. And I can't wait to dive deeper into your entrepreneurial journey and your business and how this idea came about. But before we do, I'd love to start with a question that I've often found to be very insightful and revealing. And that is, where did you grow up? And how has this impacted the choices you've made in your life and in your career so far? I was born and raised in Tokyo. So I was born in a place called Musashi Kogane. It's a small um, suburb of Tokyo, the city. And uh, I lived there until I was about five, and then my family moved to Minnesota. So um, during the American three-month school break, I would go back to Japan and kind of go back and forth and live there for the three months. So I was kind of raised in both the U.S. and Japan until I was around 10 or 11. And then, you know, life in the States, you get, you know, involved in sports and activities. So it was harder to travel. And then I was raised in Minnesota after that, for the most part. So between the two. Um, yeah, I think the the culture difference is quite stark and there have been a lot of discussions about Japan or, you know, the Eastern ideals versus the Western ideals and so on. And I definitely felt that growing up. Um, the, in America, there's that phrase that the, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. And in Japan, the, the equal phrase would be, uh, the, the long nail gets hammered down. So that kind of shows you the philosophical difference between the two, uh, two countries. I find it fascinating. I always love asking that question because I just think it does play a role where we grew up, kind of that environment. And I love that for you, it was kind of split between the two. You know, when you were kind of in Japan before you moved to the US or, you know, before 10 years old, what was that lifestyle like for you? And I guess, you know, way back then, what did you love to do as a kid? And how do you think growing up there before moving to the US kind of informed your view on life or like how you see the world? Yeah, I think, you know, raising a child in Japan is, in my opinion, one of the best things you can do because as a culture, they're, they're so good about discipline and teaching you to respect like, you know, not just, you know, elders, but the world around you and the, the environment, treating material items well, being clean, um, being respectful of others in public spaces, all the things that sometimes you lose, uh, when you go to cultures that are more, you know, flex on that kind of thing. Um, and it's more of a, it's more of a village raises a child kind of situation. So I grew up with a, a set of really close friends and families while I was really young. Um, I'd go to school there and everything, but, I think it just teaches you something different and just being raised in any other country other than the one you are spending the most time in gives you a new view of the world that you might not have had before. Mm. And you mentioned that that shift to the US and like going back and forth for all those years was like a bit of that, not culture shock, but you know, it's a different culture. It very much so is, you know, with the Western and the Eastern ideals. When you did move to the US and when you were just kind of in high school doing life, were there certain things that you just 
that you struggled to kind of resonate with in the Western culture, like the way we do things every day? Like were there certain things where you just like, oh, this is like a little bit different and I'm not used to this and did you want to assimilate? Like where was your head at when it came to kind of getting used to Western culture? Yeah, this is this is actually something I remember quite clearly. And you know, the like, granted I was quite young anyway, so it's um it's hard to say it's not like I was a teenager fully growing up uh between, but I definitely remember a lot of times when I was as even as a kid just like what what is happening? So specifically, I would remember times when in you know the United States I'd be in class and the kids who were complaining or crying or throwing a fit would get more attention or they would uh, be the one who gets to do something in class that was special and I just couldn't understand it because in Japan you're uh, you're treated well if you you know follow the rules if you're quiet and respectful and all of these things so I was coming from Japan and like thinking oh just you know do what you're told and do the right thing and like you'll be praised for it and coming to the states that was not the case so it took a long time for me to find my voice and learn how to you know talk about what I want and the things that I desire and my my goals and dreams. So it it was a long journey, but I'm glad I was on it. Mm. I love that you brought that up. And I feel like so many of our peers out there listening, especially a lot of the our amazing women and female peers out there listening and minority women perhaps have a similar view, you know, of that just respect others and don't be too loud and don't speak up too much. And you just, you know, and I definitely went through that phase of like, I want to be liked and I, I want to make sure I'm doing the right thing and perhaps I'll get praised that way. But for you, I find that, that point so interesting. Like for you, what was that journey to kind of opening yourself up like? And then I guess what advice would you have to our peers out there listening who really just feel like they can't break out of this shell or this like, you know, ceiling or whatever it is that they're in and not because people are telling them that they can't, but more just they themselves can't find it within them to do that. What advice would you have for us? Right. I mean, it took a lot of time and practice and, you know, self-confidence and testing the waters when it wasn't as risky. And I think you're totally on point when you talk about females and minorities of any kind having um, like a feeling, whether it's a perceived feeling or an actual feeling. Most of the time, it's an actual feeling that maybe you can't speak up or speak uh, the way you want to. Like I even today find myself typing in emails in a way that's like, could you please or uh, would you please mind or I'm sorry, but and then I have to edit that before I send it and realize I don't need to speak this way. You know, I, I am the boss now. I get to just tell people uh, in a kind way, but still. Um, so, I mean, it's not going to change overnight. It's certainly about practicing it, right? And then starting by speaking with your friends that you feel close to in a way that is more um, focused on what you would like or be more direct and then expanding from there. It just, it took me a long time uh, and I'm still working on it every day. It's so hard, my cat. <laughs> there are so many times when you said the email thing, I'm like, yeah, like I do a yeah. similar thing. If I'm like paying someone, I'm still like, do you mind? Do you have enough time? And I'm like, no, like, why am I, you know? But I just feel like yeah, it's just so ingrained in our nature and just the way, yeah, we were brought up. And at least for myself, like I felt like I needed to assimilate into this society. So, so interesting. So I want to dive a bit deeper into the story. So although you did have that struggle, that cultural kind of struggle growing up, as did so many of us minorities, 
You ended up being a professional acrobat performer, as you mentioned, for the Cirque du Soleil. Massive jump there from kind of being in your shell and trying to do the right thing to like going on the other end of the spectrum. Can you talk to us a little bit about that experience there? Where did this come up for you, becoming an acrobat? And what was that time in your life like? Yeah, I mean, talk about putting yourself out of your comfort zone. I, you're, you're totally right. I went from this young girl who was like kind of in my shell and to eventually, you know, after all the things that happened, becoming this person who was on stage every night in a, in a hot pink bikini in front of thousands of people every single night performing 10 shows a week. And so, um, there, there was a long journey. And as you can probably imagine in the middle of that, but I think, um, finding circus and circus acrobatics certainly helped. Um, so circus is not only an athletic sport, but it weighs heavily on performance as well. So stage presence, uh, confidence, like being able to move your body in a way that's dynamic and also telling a story. And so I grew up, um, in Minnesota, as I mentioned, and then there was a youth circus there, actually the largest youth circus in the country. It's called Circus Juventus, and it's for kids um, under 21. So I started doing that as an after-school activity. Uh, that's where I made some of my closest high school friends, and then eventually I was just spending all my time there. And that's where I trained, and eventually that's the connection that got me into the circus world professionally. But that, over time, I would perform in summer shows, kind of get that experience. And then, of course, a hobby is different than a pr- performing professionally. And so that, again, when I started professionally, was a huge jump. Um, I really relied on my coaches and the artistic team to help me and support me through that. And, yeah, I mean, I'm proud of where I you know, ended up at the very end, but it was certainly a challenging time. What was the most challenging part about it? I think it was the fact that I was surrounded by people that were the number one best in the world of what they do. So I think it's pretty rare that you find yourself in that situation because even at companies, you're surrounded by brilliant people, but there's someone smarter out there, right? But at Cirque du Soleil, the people that I was with were the the gold medalists in the Olympics. They're the people who've won circus like performances all over the world. They are the best at specifically what they do. And for me, I was not raised in a traditional circus. I didn't go to circus acrobatics college. I didn't have any professional training. So I was definitely intimidated by that. And I think it was just realizing that I was there for a reason. You know, there my, my skills were at the level that they needed to be to perform in that show. So I was part of that. But I think there's a little bit of um, total imposter syndrome. And it, that took a long time to break through. How do we get better at breaking through imposter syndrome? believing that we're enough sometimes you just have to fake it until you make it (laughs) i think um i think it's totally your own perception for the most part right like everyone around you will tell you that you know that you deserve to be there so it's it's my it's a mindset shift and if you have to pretend for yourself you just do it until eventually you believe it how long did you pretend for and you know for our peers out there listening who just feel like they've been pretending for such a long time i remember honestly not until middle of last year with my business, and it's honestly been like four years, did I feel like I was just pretending and pretending and pretending and and it got exhausting. How long was that period like for you? And at what point, or perhaps you're still on it, you know, at what point did you feel like, hang on a second, nah, like I actually have got this. I'm actually, I believe I'm good enough. I think there's a moment where you realize after pretending for so long or or maybe practicing whatever you're doing for so long where you realize, wow, I'm actually just doing this. I'm no longer pretending. And it's just like a recognition of where you are. Um, and for me, I've kind of changed industry so many times that it's constant. Like the imposter syndrome will hit and then I'll recognize, okay, I've been doing this long enough that it's not a fluke. And then I get over it, you know? So I'm I'm sure I'll come across it again. Sure we will. Oh, I love it. So I want to dive a bit deeper into 
right before you started your company. So you were performing professionally. It was all happening. You were among the best in the world. And then you go off. I think you were actually at a different college before Stanford. I might get this wrong, but I think it was the University of Minnesota. Um, I think you were there for two years and then you went to Stanford and you did a Bachelor of Science. Can you talk to us a little bit about the decision to go to Stanford and obviously one of the you know best schools in the world and, and, and kind of what that was like when you were performing at the same time? Like, How did you manage your time? What was that experience like for you? Yeah. So the University of Minnesota, I actually attended that on a program uh, called PSCO. It's post-secondary enrollment option. And it's quite unique to Minnesota, I believe. But it was during my last two years of high school. So junior and senior year of high school, I didn't go to high school. I went to the University of Minnesota. So that's where you see that two years. Um, and that's just great for saving money. It was, it was free. Uh, I got the college credit. Um, and then so when I actually graduated high school, that's when I started at Stanford. And I did do a quarter there. And then Stanford has an exceptional leave of absence program. So they let anyone for up to two years or eight quarters leave uh, without having to reapply. And I think that's just the the entrepreneurial and try your own thing kind of spirit that Stanford offers its students. And so I, I utilized that. Uh, I was on leave of absence for eight quarters. Um, and then I came back after that. But while I was working for Cirque du Soleil, I wasn't uh, in school. What was that transition like? You're starting out in college, everyone, like all your friends, everyone's go, meeting new people, and then next minute you've gone full professional and then you come back after two years. Like I can only imagine it was a bit of like a shock to the system again to have to start studying and just getting that mindset. What was that like for you? And for our peers out there listening who perhaps are going through that shift, you know, they left something to go do something else and now they're back and they're struggling to kind of get back in that mindset and headspace to kind of keep going on that track. What advice would you give? Yeah, you know, coming back to school, it was a little awkward. You know, you can't expect that all of the friends that you made before were going to remain friends because you've missed such a big chunk of the formative years of their life, especially in college. I mean, typical college, you you go to school with the same class, you are in there for four years, you become adults, and then you leave to the world together, right? And I missed a big chunk of that. So the first couple of months, I was torn between trying to catch up with my old friends that I had made before I left, as well as making new friends that were going to be there for my three years I was going to stay at Stanford. Um, so it was difficult. I think just more from a social perspective of fitting in. Um, and for me, I actually, I found, um, my people or by joining clubs. So it was less about, you know, joining the academic class that I was in because they were younger than me. And I think age doesn't matter too much when you grow up, but I think in the college days, it does, it's a little bit different. Um, so I was like two years older, three years older than everyone. Um, and so I joined an ultimate frisbee team, uh, that, became my kind of my core group along with some friends in my academic classes. But I think it's just about finding people that you connect with regardless of age. How do we find our people? That's tough. Mm, super <laughs> uh, tough. Yeah. I mean, uh, people do come and go. I want to hold on to the ones that are, that are really good, but we, we change so much over a lifetime. Right. And it's, it's really sad when you grow apart from someone you're previously really close to, but that's also just a part of life and someone else will come. Um, I think finding the people you, you got to put yourself out there. Uh, everyone wants to find their people. And if you find the right ones, maybe it'll click. I love that. It's so funny. So much of the time I, I mean, I started this show because I felt like I really needed to find my people when I was kind of starting out in business and didn't 
really know anyone who was doing the same. And it's so funny, every time I have these conversations, I often leave them or, you know, every time I'm just so jazzed after it. And I'm like, these are my people. And it took me so long to kind of get to the place or the point where I felt confident to even ask to have conversations with people who I was like, wow, like, I just love what you're doing. I want to understand where your head is at, you know? I think that confidence piece, as you mentioned, like putting yourself out there is such a big one. But unfortunately, so much of the time, like we stop ourselves from doing that. You know, was there ever a point throughout that period, perhaps when you were a professional acrobat or, you know, thereafter at college and perhaps even when you were at Microsoft, where you just felt like you couldn't really find it within you to kind of do the thing or put yourself out there or do the thing you actually wanted to do. Was there ever a point where you experienced that and how did you navigate through that? Yeah, that's a really real statement. I think the world kind of treats us as if we're machines, you know, especially now it's about being productive and doing the things all the time. And but as people like you have a social energy bar also, you have a confidence bar, you have a social energy bar. And if you don't rest and rejuvenate, that goes down. Um, so there are definitely parts and times in, in the professional world at Microsoft where my, my social energy level to reach out to people and constantly put myself out there and, you know, like face rejection, if that was the case, just got lower. And then you reach that place where you're not putting yourself out there and you're, you're not feeling confident and you're not wanting to try new things. And that's when you kind of have to check in with yourself and make sure you're, you're doing the things that matter to a human being. Things like spending alone time, uh, reading a book alone at night and not just going out or trying to get some more work done, right? Yeah, it's a total balance and that everyone is going to find their own way to find. Yeah, I love this kind of chat and I just couldn't agree more. I think often we also put a lot of pressure on ourselves to like go off and do things and like I should be doing more and I'm whatnot. And it's like there's only 24, like 12 hours or 12 working hours in a day or whatever it is. Like take a chill, take a chill. So let's talk about Microsoft and that transition there. So studying, you got through it, you kind of were navigating through it, I guess, and trying to find your people through the clubs and whatnot. And then you landed at Microsoft. Talk to us about what those 12 months were like for you. And I guess that was kind of your first kind of quote unquote real world working experience, corporate experience. And talk to us a little bit about that decision to leave. Microsoft is a great company. Uh, I think a lot of new grads uh, feel very safe joining uh, if they're lucky enough to join one of the bigger companies like Microsoft, Google, whatever it may be. Um, the, they pay you fine. Um, the, the culture is usually set up and it's such a big company that you know you're landing in a place where you're going to be pretty much taken care of in one way or another. Uh, and, you know, I was the same. I was joining as part of a college program. Um, it was for it was like a two year program aimed at college students who were starting their first full time job. So it's very handheld. They did a great job onboarding us with a caveat that this is the first time they had to onboard a remote class. So this was during the pandemic. I graduated from college during the pandemic. I started my first full-time job during the pandemic. So they shipped us all of our equipment and so on. So we missed out on all of the social getting to know your coworkers kind of stuff. That's one place where I didn't feel like I was connecting with my coworkers, the way you typically hear about people making friends with coworkers and having that culture. Um, especially Microsoft culture is a big thing. So the first year is a lot about learning. Um, they spent the th first three months training us, uh, getting to know each other, that kind of thing. And then eventually as an engineer, you're working with different teams. You're working with customers. Uh, the work was, the work was fine. 
But I knew pretty soon uh, that it wasn't utilizing my full potential and I was bored, to put it plainly. I was, I was not excited about the work I was doing. So I did spend some time looking internally. Uh, Microsoft's a great company. There's so many innovative things going on. I looked for something that was a better fit. Nothing really landed. It didn't feel right. And the decision to leave kind of started once I started thinking about what do I want to do? And I'm going to just dive into where the story of Webacy comes from because it kind of goes hand in hand. Uh, but unfortunately, like close to that time, my cousin had passed away. He was around like early 30s. Uh, it was not due to COVID. He was kind of an extreme sports guy. But um, I kind of had a firsthand look of what it's like for someone and especially someone young uh, who didn't have a will because you don't think about it when you're young and who had, you know, an estate that didn't prepare for anything. So I saw what happens and how poor the system is when it comes to handling that. And I knew there was a huge problem here. And then I knew or I saw that digital assets are a whole new class of things that uh, we don't even take care of and we don't really know what to do with when someone passes away. So it's a very heavy topic. But I, I told my co current co-founder about this and he's a former founder and he's like, I'll do this with you. And so that's kind of where I got the the push to do it. Um, I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur. It was just a matter of it had to be something that was going to keep me up at night. And once I started thinking about this topic, I couldn't sleep. I was like, what's the next thing? What, like, let me read this. Let me, let me look at this next step. And so, uh, that's what made me leave, uh, Microsoft. My goodness. Your business is like absolutely fascinating. And I want to dive deeper into it, but I just think that that leaving piece is so pivotal. You just touched on so many good points. I think so many of us feel that we're meant for more or that we're not utilizing all of our potential at the jobs that we're at or in the careers that we're in, no matter how long or short we've been there for. And I think the thing that's super special about your story is the fact that you got this obviously amazing opportunity to work at an amazing company, but that so early on, you realize and I, we're able to identify that, hang on a second, this just isn't right. And regardless of how pretty it may look on paper and, and what my parents may think, all my friends and my whatever, or the comparison piece, you were just kind of like, let me look within and figure out what I want to do. Why do you think we don't ask ourselves what we want to do? And how are you able to navigate that comparison piece when, you know, stepping out on your own, even if it is an incredible idea, which, you know, clearly was, even if it may seem so exciting, like there's no security, there's nothing, it's just you. How do we navigate through that? Yeah. I mean, for so many of us, I think we're raised being told what to do. And it, being told what to do is really, really comfortable and it feels really safe. Um, and I think, you know, from, from birth, uh, through school, through higher education, if you go through that, there is a guide and there is a path in front of you that is very straightforward. You know, you're going to be okay, that kind of thing. Right. And so I think people are used to it and comfort is, um, very hard to leave. So, you know, it's not something to get down on yourself about, but it's to recognize that there's a pattern that you've been doing, however old you are. So for me, it was 24 years that I've been in the same pattern of kind of doing what someone tells you or a path that's formed for you. Um, and it, it is hard to break out of that. It's a lot of activation energy. Um, and when it comes to the piece about actually leaving and breaking out of it, yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of tough. I think everyone's situation is different. So for me, I'm, I'm, young. I don't have a family to take care of. Um, I'm in a lucky enough situation where I got to work before I left school. And so I had some money that I can rely on and Microsoft pays well and I have good savings. So financially, it wasn't crazy for me to leave. I think the the other fact of it is that you have to 
believe in what you're doing. So if you aren't sure that you want to work on this thing every day, you're not going to be able to go through the ups and downs that you're going to go through as a founder. Maybe it's not the right time or maybe it's not the right topic. But for me, this I knew it was willing to take the risk for. And if I had bad days, I just remember I'm solving a problem that's really important. And that gets me through the bad days. And when the good days happen, everyone loves a good day. So Everyone loves a good day. I love that. So let's talk a little bit about the business. So once you came up with the idea, which is just fascinating, what were those first couple of steps that you took to kind of get it going? And also, how did you find this co-founder of yours? He seems awesome. Second time founder. How did that kind of come to be? Yeah. So the early days of Webacy were so much fun. It was so much learning. I was new to the space, at least. And as human beings, all, all of us know something about the space. This is about mortality. This is about humanity and life. Uh, and we all have digital assets. So this was, we kind of spent, you know, one or two months really diving in, finding other founders that have even going to the National Funeral Directors Association um, in Tennessee that year. It was it was just immersing yourself in everything so that you knew every component of the space, even from the archaic like law side to the brand new Web3 crypto side. We we dove into everything. We read all the books. We did all the research. I'm finally on Twitter. Like all of these things where you just dive in and you realize how much you don't know. So that's where we spent the majority of the time. Now, my co-founder, we've been friends for five or six years. Um, we met while I was on tour with Totem in Tokyo. We've been uh, just like kind of staying in touch over the years. And then over the pandemic, we reconnected. And so, yeah, he's been absolutely wonderful. We really balance each other out. And I think when you're, when you're founding something, being by yourself is hard. I really am in awe about solo founders because it's so hard. I don't know if I could do this alone, but yeah, Webacy has grown a lot since its first couple of days, but those, those baby days, I think of very fondly. I love that. I struggled so much in the first years of my, <laughs> me starting out. What were some of those early challenges that you faced? You know, as you mentioned, it's hard, like starting a business, any kind of business, executing on an idea that you have, sticking to it, knowing what to do next or not knowing and stumbling forward. Like, you know, it's so tough mm -hmm. and it can take you to really dark places. What were those early challenges like? And was there ever a point in the early days that you just kind of thought, what did I do? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I'm still going to come across days like that where I'm like, what are we doing? And it's not working or something like that. Um, I think the topic in general is hard, right? Uh, mortality is a super eye-catching topic, but when it comes to consumers, getting people to care is tough. Business things like user acquisition, that kind of thing, that's a problem we're going to run into in the future. We're currently building out the beta product because it's quite a sensitive topic, as you can imagine, right? We want to make sure we get it right. Um, as well as from the blockchain side, you have to be really careful about security and making sure it's bulletproof when you're managing billions of dollars of assets. So uh, from that end, I think a lot of the, the challenges might be ahead of us. But yeah, I think like kind of like I said before, uh, the times when you feel like down about it, I'm not sure if I ever had a moment where I wished I was still in Microsoft. It, it just wasn't for me. And I love being a founder. Uh, I love working on this company every single day. But there are certainly lows uh, when you don't get something that you want or maybe a like a new hire didn't work out or something like that, where you just feel down and you feel like you are a failure because you start to associate your company with yourself. Yeah, I mean, my, my co-founder always tells me, just sleep on it. And usually when you wake up, you have a more clear mind. Um, I studied a lot of like stoicism and philosophy in school and, and now today. And that has gotten me through kind of the mental roller coaster that you go through when you're building a business. I love that. Yeah. I just, I couldn't agree more. Micah, 
It's been so awesome chatting, but I am mindful of your time. And so I've got a couple of final questions for you. And the first one is, what has been your greatest failure and win to date? Ooh, that's tough. I fail all the time. (laughs) (laughs) I think people underestimate the number of times everyone else fails because we only display our successes everywhere. Um, (laughs) Right. This is a dumb example. Um, I'm going to probably give you a bunch of dumb examples of ways that have failed, but I live in San Francisco and there's there's one rule, which is don't leave your bags in the car. Right. And I... I knew I was leaving my bag in the car and I still chose to do that. It's just I sometimes you just don't want to bring your your bag into a dinner. And then I came back and my car was broken into and the window was smashed and I had to go through all these things. So the, all of these decisions that we make in a split second without really thinking about those could lead to a failure, right? Um, I, I think you can probably tell I take failure um, kind of easily. I think it's um, maybe it's a, a factor of being a, an athlete. You have to try a bunch and fail a bunch before you can succeed at anything as an athlete in athletics. Uh, I think any athlete can probably resonate with that. But um, I'm trying to think of biggest failure. It's hard. I think I think part of the resiliency that's important is getting past your failures and not dwelling on them. So maybe we can come back to that one. But um, biggest success, uh, that's also tough. I'm super proud of the the work I did with Cirque du Soleil. Um, I was a lead performer for one of the biggest touring shows at a very young age. And so that was big. Um, and then I think actually most recently, Webacy was recognized in Forbes 30 Under 30. And that's something that I've always wanted to be on. Um, and so when that came, I was I was so proud. That, that day was really great. And I was really proud of our team for what we've built and the challenge we're tackling. So that would probably be the most recent big success. Massive success. And that's actually how we found you. So <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I love it. So look, Micah, over the last kind of six powerful months in business, but then also beyond that kind of 10 years working on yourself, being an elite athlete and whatnot, you've really gone from strength to strength. You've received a lot of recognition for your work over the years. And as you just mentioned, most recently you were featured on the Forbes 30 under 30 list. What are three key pieces of advice that you would give our peers out there listening that you wish you got when you were just starting out? Yeah, three key pieces of advice. The first one comes into my head really quickly, and that is to sleep enough. I don't know when it started, but I I did not prioritize my sleep. And I'm. it sounds silly, but this, my sleep impacts everything else that I do. And the days that I struggled, the were those days that I didn't get sleep the night before, right? And sleep is so important to us. So that's the first one. Uh, the second one is to find an outlet. So for me, that's exercise. I have to do it to feel sane, uh, whether it's art to you or going for a run or reading or talking to a friend. It can be anything, but you need to have something else other than work and other than your regular routine that lets you release your energy or your pent-up frustration, whatever that may be. That'd be number two. Um, and number three uh, would to be one in doubt just take a step forward. So if you're ever feeling like you are stuck or you have so much work to do that you don't know what to do, just do something. And usually that momentum will translate to something else and then you'll get everything done that you want to or you'll be able to say the thing you want to. Um, Those would probably be my three pieces of advice. So, so great. Look, Micah, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge you for a moment before I ask you the final question. For all the incredible work you've done and that you're doing, you know, for showing us and particularly us, you know, ambitious women of color, ambitious millennials, minorities, that if we have that goal, that vision and that dream, 
And if we want to speak up, we can. You can follow what we want to do and it's okay. And for that, we really appreciate you. Thank you, Michelle. Of course. So the final question is how we finish every episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. And that is, what is the value of pursuing what you're most passionate about? This is such a great question. Um, For me, hearing that question, it kind of makes me think about as human beings, um, how we find purpose in life. And I have found that I feel like I have purpose in life when I'm doing something that is interesting to me and that is passionate to me. For me, you know, pursuing what's passionate to me is giving me a purpose in life. And that's my simple, straightforward answer to that question. I love it. Oh, Micah, it's been absolutely awesome. Thank you so much again. Where can we learn more about you and Webacy? Yes. So you can find uh, Webacy's website at uh, webacy.co. We are in a beta mode where we are very, very close to launching publicly. So look out for that. Um, You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at Micah Isagawa. Amazing. We'll link them up in the show notes. Thank you so much again. And for everyone else listening, we will end with that. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by Shopify. Remember, Peers, we're here to help you turn your passion into a business. And so is Shopify. And so if you're looking to start your biz, head to shopify.com.au for your 14-day free trial. Peers, that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by Shopify. We hope you've enjoyed your introduction to our latest guest peer and that you find them as gung-ho as we do. For more, make sure to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, and leave us a review. We produce with passion, and it doesn't stop here. To see what else we're up to, visit thepeersproject.com or follow us on Instagram at thepeersproject. We'll have fresh, real talk for you next week, peers. Until then, if you need inspiration, look amongst your peers. Peers.